It is the duty of the free man to resist tyranny at every turn. Every man will either watch his freedom stripped away or take action to protect what he loves. Introducing the A3, the newest revolutionary body armor from Armored Republic. The A3 is the new standard for lightweight multi-hit body armor. A3 plates are incredibly light at 4.6 pounds. The patented design captures fragmentation while remaining multi-hit capable. The A3 will stop up to M80 ball, yet comes in at only 0.7 inches thick. The A3 is the thinnest NIJ.06 compliant or certified composite standalone plate that includes the drop test. The A3 is the first of its kind, patent pending, that combines an alloy strike face with polyethylene backing, revolutionizing body armor technology by providing strength and durability while remaining sleek and maneuverable. The A3 is the new standard in lightweight body armor. The fight against tyranny just got stronger. Looking for a job isn't easy. It used to be that you could apply at a big name tech company and build a great career for yourself. But times have changed. Many of these companies have gone full woke. And if you aren't the right gender, ethnicity, you don't use pronouns, or if you're not an activist for the preferred cause, then good luck. Why would you risk your career on that? At Red Balloon, we're connecting good employees with top quality companies that value you for your skills and your work ethic, not your social activism score. Employers who post jobs on Red Balloon are focused on creating an enjoyable and productive work culture, free from divisive woke mandates. So if you want to find a serious career path without the nonsense, come to Red Balloon and post your resume today. Because you shouldn't have to choose between your job and your values. That's redballoon.work, where you can find your future. Oh man, we got the Energizer Bunny coming on. <laughs> That's right. True. You wind them up, you let them go. <laughs> Stick around for Jaron Jackson. Welcome to Cross Politics on the Fight Lab Feast Network. It's Wednesday. Pastor yeah. Toby, Chuck Knox, I'm the water boy. Is it Christian? Well, we don't have any beer. What is this? Is this the weirdest oh, we Wednesday have, of all? It is. It is. And we're still wearing the same clothes from yesterday. Did we record this? Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but this year, our Fight Laugh Feast conference is at the Ark Encounter. That's the thing to remember. Do yes. not pay attention to anything else. <laughs> the Ark Encounter. The politics of six-day creation. The politics of six-day creation is the difference between a fixed standard of justice mm. and a careening standard of justice, which is not a standard of justice at all. No. The difference between the corrosive relativism that creates mobs and anarchy and then ends in tyranny and the freedom of objectivity, truth, and due process. The politics of six-day creation establishes the authority and sufficiency of God's word for all of life from what is a man or what is a woman? Or when does human life begin? Or who should be the Christian prince of America? Yeah, even that. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the answer is Jesus. <laughs> and how is human society best organized? All these questions really originate in Genesis. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. I mean, that, that's like everything's there. So come here. Can Ham, the, 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 the originator, the, the OG, the OG of yeah. the Ark Encounter, Pastor Doug Wilson will be there. Dr. Ben Merkel is going to be there. Dr. Gordon Wilson from Riot in the Dance Ooh. fame. 
You know, some people are coming just for Dr. Gordon Wilson. A lot of people. Yeah. People are like, Gordon Wilson's going to be from Riot in the Dance? Yeah. Like, the guy's going to have a line out the back of, like, you know. Of lizards. They wanted, the kids want to give them all these. Could you oh, sign I my lizard? Yeah, yeah, something. I don't know. But everybody, you. They're snakes. Come hang with Dr. Gordon Wilson. Yeah. Joe Rigney's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Of course, there'll be a live cross-politic show with yours truly and something crazy and something crazy we yeah. haven't figured it all out yet but mark your calendars for october 11th to the 14th look it doesn't matter if school's in session just take all the kids out of school just go well, that's, we're that's, doing that's what we're doing we're, doing we're all doing it all so, my kids sorry logos no, as we, knox's kids gonna be there too as, as we yeah. fight laugh and feast with beer and psalms that first night our amazing lineup of speakers rowdy christian merch a sabbath feast to wrap up the occasion maybe 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 an infant baptism while we're at it. If you ask nicely, visit fightlaughfeast.com. <laughs> There'll be plenty of water for more information. No, the water's gone. The water's been all dried up. It's back. No, it came back. <laughs> they recreate it every year. <laughs> we're really grateful to have Jaron Jackson back yes, on the show. Yeah, yeah. Jaron Jackson is a Bible believer, West Point grad, combat Ooh. veteran, Ooh. small businessman, homeschool dad, author. Host of the Jaron Jackson Thought Stream, a daily commentary show that brings all events of the day to a biblical worldview. Thought Stream, I like newest that. Newest book is, I've got it right here. Believe it or not. Whoa, 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 not. whoa, whoa. Front cover. You read front cover. Christian nationalism is inevitable. Oh. And that's good news. Wow. Mic drop. So, Jaron, thanks for coming back on Cross Politic, man. Hey, guys. God bless you. So, so, so I got, I got, I got a bone to pick here real quick. Okay. Whoa. Jaren okay. sends me that book. Okay. Okay. And, and didn't send me mailed one. it to me. Didn't send me one. You know mailed why didn't it to send me one? Because Christian nationalism is I'm racist. I'm cheap. <laughs> mailed it to me. I'm oh, cheap. I'm cheap. Oh, okay. He well, mailed it to me and did not sign the book. What? And instead, <laughs> and instead, I get this letter. What is this letter? Uh oh. He sent you a letter. And Gabe, said. as promised in Christ. That was it. That was it. <laughs> well, man, wow. a few words. Whoa. So, Jerry, Christian nationalism got you too, huh? Uh, well, so Christ got me, and I'm here to pick a fight like Jesus. So, yeah, amen. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, 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 whoa. He's about as short that's, as that's the that's he's he's like, like, yeah, like, yeah, that's it. Amen. But, but hang on. Jaren, Jer- there's been a lot of books written, uh, a lot of blog articles written on this. I mean, why did you jump into this uh, Christian nationalism game? Well, I mean, like I said, uh, first of all, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, by faith, through grace, that is sufficient for salvation. Let's just get that right out the door. Uh, Christ is king. He said he owned the place. He bought it with his blood. And then he told us to make everybody obey him. Um, What I do is I actually let the Bible define the words and not dictionaries. And I think that if we ask the question, if we make all thoughts captive to Christ, what does Christian mean? What does nation mean? What does nationalism mean? If we let God speak first, I think he's very clear on these things. Um, So I, I got into this because, you know, I was on your show last year as a candidate for state Senate. And uh, I won the Republican primary. And as soon as I went into the runoff, I had national media descend on me. And they took comments that I had made, they warped them. And I realized they were doing that to punish me electorally to convince people here in Oklahoma that I hated Jews, that I was a Nazi, that I was a bad guy somehow, uh, even though I am a sinner. And uh, I realized... (laughs) 
they don't really care about the arguments we make. Right. They're trying to stop faithful and obedient Christians bringing the gospel message uh, to the world. And one of the techniques that they used was they called me an anti-Semite. They called me a Nazi. They called me all these other things. Lies. And so I realized I'm going to be, I'm going to just embrace the term Christian nationalism because right now that's the thing that a lot of the enemies of Christ are afraid of. And if, if they want to mean that to be faithful Christians bringing the gospel, I, I'm, 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 I'm ready to have that conversation. So that's why I wrote it was because I want to bring all thoughts captive to Christ. And I think by understanding that the gospel saves the world, uh, we can understand that, you know, every nation will be Christian. So it's inevitable. So that's what I believe because the Bible says so. Okay. Can we start in the beginning? Cause this is when I open up the, 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 the table of contents. It's the first thing you start out with is Christian. Next thing is next chapter nationalism. The next thing after that is nation, nation, uh, nation. I'm sorry. Yeah. Nation yeah. chapter is three. It, yeah. chapter, and then chapter three is Christian nation. <laughs> Fourth chapter <laughs> inevitable. It's just hilarious. Yeah. Just the way you worked. But I would love to work through just define Christian. Let's define nation. Let's define Christian nation. And then inevitable. Let's work. Let's just work through those. Can we start with Christian? How are you defining it? Yeah. Amen. So first of all, we have to understand that I, and I said this in the intro, I presuppose the authority of scripture. And that is the difference between me and anybody else that's ever written on Christian nationalism is that I believe I'm not even going to argue scripture with you. You either believe it or you don't. It's either God's word or it's not. Um, not to say that other people haven't presupposed scripture, but my presupposition is also my methodology. So not only do I set aside Christ as king, but then I say, first, what do you want me to say and what's the argument? And we are first introduced to the idea of Christian in Acts eleven twenty six, when the Bible says after Paul had been there for a year in Antioch, you know, worshiping and teaching uh, with the people there. Then they were called Christians. So Christian doesn't have a definition. It's a tied to an event. And as I say in the book, Christian is not a term for us. Christian is a term for people who don't follow Jesus, because the ones who don't follow Jesus was the ones that I believe came up with the term. And that's how they were known is because they couldn't shut up about this guy named Jesus, who's king of all things. So the definition of Christian is first and foremost, it's a word that people who don't follow Jesus needed in order to identify the people who did follow Jesus. So if you understand that background, I'm not really interested in the definition of Jesus so much as I am in following him, which is the point. And, and so whenever we look at Christian, there's, you know, faith, there's the gospel, there's justification, there's all these things that are baked into it. But what we've done is we've set at the foot of Jesus and we've said, tell us how to think. And I think whenever we, in 21st century, we say, well, what's this definition? That's an academic approach. Give, give me the context of this. Let me, what's the def, let's work the definition. I think that's the wrong place to start. The right place to start is Christ is king and he talks about these issues. As far as nation, uh, the first time nation is used in the Bible is Genesis 10 verse 5. And it talks about there's going to be lands that are divided. They're divided by the tongue, the family, according to their nation. And so right there, you've got a place, a people, and a common language, which I think the purpose of language is worship. And so if you have a common language, you're going to try to accomplish a purpose. So I think the Bible makes the case that the definition for a nation is a place with a people and a purpose. 
And I think that nests with the great commission whenever Jesus says, make them all obey, teach them all to obey. So it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you are. Your purpose will be for the gospel. And so if you have that understanding of nation, and and by the way, whenever you get Genesis 10, okay, Genesis 10 is before Abram's called. Right. So it's almost as though God lets the entire world form their own nations the way that they want to. And then he says, okay, y'all guys formed y'all's nations. Now let me make mine. Now let me call my people and let me show how I am different from everybody else. But you've got nations in Genesis 10, 5. They're promised in the Abraham covenant, Genesis 17, 4. Jesus mentions nations in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And then they're mentioned at the very end in Revelation 21, 24, when they are the nations of the saved and the kings will, are bringing him gifts. So you've got nations all throughout the Bible, and it's it's something that God doesn't back away from. It seems like in his sovereignty, he let man do his, you know, choose their things, which was idolatry, and they're going to choose to form their own ideas. And then he's going to give us the gospel, and then Christ gives us the mission, go make them obey. In the process of that, pro- proclaiming the gospel, um, and that's going to bring all nations back to him. Okay, so I, I have a few questions. I think I think no- stuff. Knox has got some questions too. He's over there writing <laughs> furiously. Whenever he starts writing down notes, you know he's, it's going to it's going to be good. So just you know, get <clears throat> bu- buckle up, Jaron. But yeah, um, he didn't he didn't do the inevitable part. But and, and I, oh yes. oh, I, I can I can get there. Hey, it, G- Jesus gave a command. Oh, do you think he expects it to be done? Okay, that was quick. Oh man, that was good. <laughs> How do you think that was, expect that was to be done? So uh, yes, yes, yes. So uh, amen, um, amen. Back to, <laughs> I want to go back to Christian for a second, and I appreciate how you described that because I, I think that um, modern evangelicals have a really hard time with because what with what you're talking about that the fact that Christians, um, the, the people that follow Jesus are first called Christians in Antioch does indicate, and I think it's something that's just not really talked about, not emphasized hardly at all that there's a kind of objectivity to that, or as you noted, um, most likely they're called this initially by those who are outside, those who are um, uh, unbelievers. And almost as some sort of pejorative, almost. Yeah. yeah. Right, look at those Christians. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, they follow that that Christ, that yeah. guy who said he was the Christ. The holy one. Um, so, um, but I'm curious, um, I don't know if you've been following much of the, the, the sort of Twitter wars, and I haven't really been following it that closely, but um, there was enough of a kind of a kerfluffle over the last couple of weeks, particularly um, some people coming out talking about um, uh, Christian culture and 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 sort of Christian nominalism. So, so the the notion that you know a a, a, a culture can develop that has people who um, you know are nominally Christian, uh, culturally Christian, but maybe perhaps don't you know are not regenerated, don't don't know the Lord. You know, maybe thinking of you know Bible Belt Christianity, or um, you know, again, just you, know, you go back fifty years and just, churches. Just then, you know, maybe you go to church on Christmas and Easter. You know, this kind of thing, and and you know, you you can mention God or Jesus, and maybe you got baptized one time, but you know, maybe maybe the the root of of the matter is not in you. Um, how does that definition of Christian play into that conversation? You think? Yeah. Um, so again, I, I am, I presuppose scripture. And so I want to methodically bring everything to, to Christ. Uh, what's it? Second Corinthians 10, when it says, make all thoughts captive, right. that's all thoughts, not just some, or not just the ones we're not familiar with. Uh, Christian culture, Christian nominalism. All I hear is academia. All I hear is big words trying to make sense of a phenomena that is there's a tension in the church right now. 
And the church is, do I follow Jesus or do I not get killed? Do I, do I not feel pain? Do, do I go along with the flow and embrace fornication and kind of the, the way that the culture is going and I don't want to offend anybody? Or do I follow the clear teachings of scripture? And that is, I might have to go get slaughtered like a lamb. I might have to speak truth about people who hate my guts. Um, and, and so I think there's that tension. And I think that one of the ways that people ameliorate it is they bifurcate with a bunch of big words. Christian culture, Christian nominalism, uh, you know, get underneath that. Culture is a gardening term. It comes from the dirt. Uh, we're supposed to be humble. Philippians 2, there was no one more humble than Jesus. So if you come from that, if you follow him, you know, there's wheat and tares in the same field. I'm not going to go try to pick out all the the, the tares. I'm just going to, you know, try to try to till the earth and, and work where God's placed me. And I, I, I think I think the objective in this conversation needs to be, what does the Bible say about that? And then every single time someone makes a proposition or makes a claim, where did you get that in scripture? Because, you know, I'll just be candid. Um, whenever I was wielding power overseas as a combat infantryman, uh, there was no questioning my authority. I, you know, I could, I could drop bombs. I could use force. I could, I could use my, my power. Right now, we have such a non-gospel focus in the church that now the guns are pointed in and we're trying to figure out, well, what does it mean? I don't really care. The gospel, let's advance that. And if we're if we're any kind of confused, let's use the Bible to make sense of things. And I think we'll be a lot better. Uh, I hope that addresses what you're getting at. I don't know if it does. But no, it kind of, I, no, I want to, I want to push a little more in because it doesn't quite address it. People are concerned that there is this um, this nominal form of Christian, or, or there's there's people who aren't really committed to the gospel yep. that are a part of a society, and when you have that, you can't really control it. You can't really. There's no real commitment to it, so you don't get blessing and flourishing. You get meh. Yeah. And and secularism yeah. comes from that, and so because you have that, you can't really impose this kind of form of. Because uh, there's a group inside of the Christian nationalist group that a, a, a Christian country, even though you might not have true converts across the whole platform, um, is still a good thing because it perpetuates godliness in a society. And other people are saying, no, no, no. If you have people who are not false converts inside an environment, you are not perpetuating a godly society. You will ultimately end up with a society that rejects God. Hello, look at what we have here right now. And yeah. so when you try and impose a Christian nation, but you're talking about having Christian converts of the nation and then imposing that. No, no, no. You're going to have legalism. You're going to have rampant um, rejection of that. And you're going to get what we have in our society right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I don't think, you know, I, I take issue with the word impose. I mean, um, I'm not looking to by force or by jackboot stick a gun in somebody's head and say, you have to believe the gospel. Uh, in the book, I talk about democracy in America, Alex de Tocqueville. He's a French aristocrat and he's coming from Europe in the early 1800s trying to figure out why is there so much instability in Europe? Well, all the aristocrats are looking at this free country called America and Tocqueville comes over and he, what's what makes it work? And his thesis is there's a robust Christian culture that comes from the belief. Now, if you want to get granular and start talking about, well, is this guy regenerate or is he just faking? Um, I I want to give grace and I want to say that's, I mean, 
I'll preach the gospel. If you don't believe it, that's that's up to you and the Almighty. And Christ was talking about that whenever he said, beware of the wolves in sheep clothing. There's false prophets, the wheat and the tares, uh, you know, the sheep and the goats. Uh, you know, so, so Christ has teaching on that. Now, I guess where I'm coming from, from a Christian nationalism perspective, is I have the expectation that Christ is going to get what he wants. And if Christ gets what he wants, which I believe he does, I believe the Bible teaches that, then I have to understand there's a way between where I am and what Christ is going to get. And what I call that is nationalism. And quite simply, I think the Bible makes the case, take care of your own, take care of your own nation. Uh, in the Old Testament, when Asuerus, uh, he gave a proclamation against the Jews. He never rescinded it. But what he did do is he said, hey, y'all Jews can defend yourself. And they did. In in Purim, in Purim, um, you know, you've got Cyprus that, or, or, or excuse me, Cyrus uh, that that saw the prophecy and was like, oh yeah, this is true. I'm going to do this. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is quoted in the Book of Daniel. So here are pagan kings that turned eventually. You know, they they obeyed and submitted to God. And when the pagans submitted to God, when they obeyed Him, He gave them flourishing. Now, I also believe, and this is where I'm willing to, you know, have the conversation because I don't, I just don't know. I think that the gospel is so good. And that when Christians are actually following Jesus, you can use satire to insult other places using the serrated edge, but you can also just by the goodness of your demonstration and the fruit of your life, you'll naturally demonstrate a better way. And so that's not necessarily coercion. So much as it says, as Paul says in Romans, they're going to be jealous. My way is just better because this is the way of Christ. Well, uh, And so I don't necessarily have to coerce you. I'm going to be faithful and obedient. You might imprison me. You might kill me. You might call me an anti-Semite, but I'm going to follow Jesus. And by following Jesus, he's going to faithfully uh, convert heart, you know, circumcise hearts and, and have people born again. And so I think that whenever people hear nationalism, and I write about this in the book, they think Hitler, they think Nazis, they think politics, they think government. And I think that's a red herring because as, as a Christian, and this is this is where I might step on some toes, I understand the three spheres people talk about, but I want to know where does the Bible say that there's three spheres? Like if it's all under Jesus why can't he demonstrate through the goodness of the gospel that the man-made constructs of government are, are, aren't as good as, you know, hey, you, you did me wrong. Let me come along with my brother in Matthew 18. And if he, you know, if I win him over, then I won my brother. Does that make sense? Like, why don't we practice church discipline as a me measure to govern people? And in the process, we actually get a better outcome than trying to compel, like you say, uh, through government. Uh Okay, sorry, Pastor Toby had to run out and do pastor yeah. stuff. So we that's because we just went a little long, but that's okay. We you got time, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he, I, there's a couple things there. Um, I I don't want to get sidetracked into the sphere. I want to talk about the sphere stuff. Let's just put that off for a second. Okay. okay. Um, but I think the issue that people are having is not with the idea of the gospel. If you said, "Hey, I want the gospel to be proclaimed in government," I think people would be like, "Oh, yeah, absolutely, we would agree with you. That's all good." So, Jaron, are you going to enforce the first table of the law in, as a civil magistrate? That's yeah. where I think that's where I think that the questions are coming down, because that's where people are saying, whoa, what are you talking about doing? 
Well, right. But the, so, so God talks about the, the role of the sword, Romans 13, not to swing it in vain. And so I actually think it's evil not to stop evil. So, uh, and if you are the civil magistrate, then that's, that's the position that you're in. That's, that's what God has called you for. And that's something as, you know, as a guy that's, you know, I've, I've, I've been in combat. I've, um, I've taken people's lives. That's not something that you, that you take lightly. That's not something that you just do. And so if we want to talk about what it means to kill somebody legally, okay, let's have that conversation because I can tell you that there was an ambush that we did and there were people that were killed as a result of it. And I remember thinking October 5, 2010, I just sent five guys to hell because they're probably Mm. Muslims. Like that worked on me. That really, really worked on me. Um, but then that's where you have to have that relationship. And I'll just tell you, it's not for the faint hearted. If you're going to be in the position to wield the sword, to carry the firearm, to impose those things, um, you know, that, that's, that's a moral obligation. And that's something that I have personally done, uh, with, you know, with deliberation, I planned on these things. So can we talk um, about, can we talk about that for a second? In, in, yeah. in your world as a Christian nationalist, you would impose the first commandment. Well, but like, okay, so am I a civil magistrate or yes, am I just civil, like Jaren? I'm, I'm only I'm only talking about as a civil magistrate leader, right? This is a Christian nation. You're, you're making, governor you're, of Oklahoma. You're, 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 um, you're making Christian laws. Let's just think of kind of the context of America right now, but sure. as a Christian nation. So you're going to say, hey, listen, no, no, idolatry, no idolatry in America. No more of that. That's the death penalty. Or what would you say about the first commandment? How are you imposing well, that reality? Well, so this is chapter five, America, the beautiful. And so America is built on the common law tradition, which the common law tradition isn't uh, adversarial or predatory uh, according to people's behaviors, unless they violate or trespass people's rights. That's, that's the common law tradition. So from a constitutional perspective, a constitutional republic perspective, the constitution isn't going to use government force unless you're violating someone's rights. If someone is an idolater, you have not trespassed another image bearer of God's rights. You've just you're just an idolater, uh, and that's a sin. And so, no, I wouldn't bring the 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 state. I wouldn't bring the government against a sin unless that sin is trespassing the rights, which is the purpose of government is to defend rights, and that's the Christian tradition called the common law. So, so pornography is okay. Not violating again. It's it, you know, it, it's 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 violating people's rights. Now I I'm I'm against it, and I think that the government should say that you're not going to be able to solicit that material to your children. But ultimately, I think that parents should be in the position to punish uh, if there's any material that gets to their kids. So in, in this in this this gets the to to the the ethic the Christian ethic is like what's the role of government. Is the role of government to be forward leaning? Is it to be something that is proactive or is it looking for justice? Because justice, there has to be a harm. And if there's not a harm yet, then why am I going to forward lean in order to, uh, you know, set conditions where I'm trying to stamp out idolatry everywhere? Okay. And, so- you know, and, and as a Christian, I'd even get back to the fact that it's like, well, why don't I fall again? I, I know that we're all going to proclaim the gospel. But that's the answer. I mean, the answer is I'm going to follow Jesus. And if that dude wants to, you know, be an idolater, he's not violating my right. And so the government doesn't have, in my opinion, the government doesn't have the justification to use force against him. Okay. So then I think, 
Yeah, go ahead. So then the first commandment in your Christian nationalism would would basically allow for idolatry. It's not a crime. No, because no. So it's again, it's what's the role of government? Yeah, it's, I'm, it's I'm, with, I'm, just, I'm just clarifying. I'm totally following you. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah. yeah. So then, well, well, so so the so the question the question is is begging like for there to be another purpose of government. What's the purpose of government? That's that's the question we should be asking. That's the debate we should be having. If that's the case, punish. What evil, I tried to do, what good. I tried to do was I tried to define what the words meant yeah. first yeah. according to the Bible, and then from that say where Scripture is t- teaching us, and that's every nation's going to be Christian. But if we're going to bring in political connotations to nationalism, which is one of the things I talk about, we have been trained to think that nationalism is a political ideology, a political philosophy. I think the case, I think the Bible makes the case that God wants nations to look after their own. But God wants nations to take care of themselves. I agree. And with that's that. a good and righteous thing. But Jaren, and you- so then yeah. Do you think historically that nationalism has had the track record of bringing in a, a, a identity that is per, primarily that of its nation and put all other identities outside of that so that you are primarily defined by your nation and nothing else? So there is some do you think there's some credit there historically in that national historic a, definition, a, a, a historic definition of nationalism? You can see why people would be a little concerned when you put Christian in front of nationalism, because historically you do have nationalism, you do have your Hitlers, you do have your mouths, you do have uh, a form of identity primarily being sucked in by your nation and what it wants over against the identity of your baptism and what it is and what it wants. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. Completely agree, and this is this is why as Christians we have to stay adamant on the authority of Scripture. Yeah, and this is why as a Christian nationalist, it's like bend those words first to the Bible. What does God mean about those things? And and I'll I'll even say this, like you know, the word gospel, gospel at the time of Jesus was known for Caesar, not Christ. When Jesus came out in Matthew four and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. He's taking that term from Caesar and he's applying it to himself. Christian, again, I believe was a label that was developed by people who weren't Christians. And I believe it was a pejorative. But yet today, it's something that we all identify as. And so there's a theme in Christendom to take what our enemy gives us and make it obey Jesus. And that's kind of what I try to point out Mm. is that everyone is flustered, seems like, and wants to argue about, are you going to impose this? Are you going to impose that? When it's like, do you realize that if we take whatever the enemy's throwing at us and bend it to Jesus, that, I mean, that's that's in our history. That's right. our history. But I, um, but politically, yeah, there's. I, I, I completely agree with you. I can see the argument that people will, uh, for the betterment of their nation, do whatever it is that there is, and they'll get caught up with that. So, I absolutely agree with so you. Jared, I, I, am, absolutely. Am I understanding you properly that you're really making a distinction between the civil aspects of nationalism and nation over against the idea of Christians um, being centered around the gospel and a culture that impacts the civil realm? Or So are you, you're making a distinction between the two because I think everybody else is making Christian nationalism right. a civic issue that, that's right. over against that's, a that, go ahead 
Exactly. That's exactly my distinction, which I think is what the Bible tells us to do. I think I think the Bible tells us to make all thoughts captive to Christ. And we first have to understand what does Christian mean? What does nationalism mean? Does the Bible make a case for nationalism? Yes, it does, I think. And if that's the case, Christian national, I don't really care what Merriam-Webster says. I don't care what Encyclopedia Online says. That's what the world is trying to define us as. That's what the world is trying to put on us. And I'm saying whenever we presuppose scripture, you know, we make that obey King Jesus. And, and so the distinction that I'm trying to get at is the methodology of like, you know, like I was, I was called an anti-Semite for saying that if Jews don't believe the gospel, they're going to go to hell just like everybody else. That's not that's not an anti-Jewish position. Well, that's a truthful position. If you said that about black now, people, you'd be racist now too. Huh? <laughs> well, but and, and that's, that, that's, so that's kind of my that's yeah. kind of my point. And yeah. and just so you know, that comment was provoked because people were accusing me of being a, a spy or a shill for for another nation. And it's like, so so when people throw labels on you, when they throw baggage on you, I don't have to take that. I'm not going to take that. Uh, I like Pastor Wilson's approach. He's like, yes, I'm a Christian nationalist. Let me tell you what that means. Right. You know, uh, you know, yes, this is what I believe. And here's where I find it in scripture. And I believe that the internecine war right now in the church, what's a Christian nationalist? We're afraid of imposing through the government. Not it's like, listen, what does Jesus command? And as a military guy, this is where I'm I I, I kind of get this. He's the king and he spoke. And it's like, does he expect to get what he wants? Yes. Yes, he does. So <laughs> yes, as, as yes, a faithful does. servant to him, as a faithful servant to him, I'm not going to pay attention to the, the ministries and, and their figureheads that are going to say whatever. I'm going to say the enemy is calling me these names. The enemy is calling me a Christian nationalist because I dare put my name on a ballot and then brought Jesus into a political conversation. Interesting. Got death threats, got businesses destroyed, got my reputation maligned, right? If if that's going to happen for the proclamation of the gospel, what's my response? Okay, bring it. Let's do it. And so we're going to bend that back to the Bible, which is I think what we need to do because otherwise we're going to get sucked into uh putting Christ and Christendom on the same level as every other ideology. And I just, I'm just not going to do that. I no, mean, I, I completely going to happen. I disagree with that as well. So I'm okay, sorry, Gabe, no, go ahead. No. Uh, so Jaren, um, I, I want to read your book because I actually, I haven't read it because you only sent one copy to Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> and Gabe has I'll had send the book. You another one. Hit me up the, the oh, address. Steal his, yeah, okay. At least sign mine. Okay. When you send it. <laughs> You can send it to I'm Gabe sorry. with a signed copy to Knox. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> okay, where can people yeah, get will. your where can people get your book at? Because this is fascinating. And you you're making some different arguments than the traditional, I think, um, group of Christian nationalism nationalists are making. And you and I think you're making a distinction between nation and nationalism uh that is is and you're entering a different part of the conversation than I think everybody yeah. else has historically as they think about nationalism. Right, right. Well, so, so here, so, so, right. So the, so the Bible uses the word nation and, and, and let's go on this real fast. Cause this is good. Yeah, this yeah. is good. People will say that nation comes from ethnos and you'll automatically say, you probably already automatically say ethnicity, right? Sure. Ethnicity. And how do you know we're different ethnicity? Well, skin color, you look different, whatever. 
Did you know that ethnic was first introduced in the 15th, 16th century to mean pagan? Had nothing to do with about what people look like. Ethnic, in its original use, intended and was only for people who did not believe the gospel. They were pagan nations. And so ethnicity is really hijacked by Darwinian presupposition. Mm. And now that you've got Darwinian presupposition hijacking ethnicity, now you've got Christians that whenever they look at the Greek and they see ethnos, their brain has automatically made the connection to ethnicity. And they've now marinated in multiculturalism and secularism. And so they can't divorce ethnicity from ethnos in the Bible. Whenever you look at what the Bible says, God's, I think, very clear, Genesis 10, 5, he says there's land, there's people, there's a tongue. That's what God says a nation is. And so ethnos in the Greek is talking about a land, a people, and a purpose. That's what nation, that's what the Bible says a nation is. So if I take ethnicity with Darwinian presuppositions, any and all conversation about Christian nationalism is automatically going to bring in skin color. It's automatically going to bring in yep. all these uh, elements yeah, we've seen that, that, quite frankly, yep. God made distinct because he's creative, not to be divided upon by Satan. Yeah. And so what I really try to do is I try to use that methodology to literally make every idea bend its knee to King Jesus. Um, because I think that's what we're supposed to do. I, I, I think that's what the Bible teaches. Man, I'm looking forward to read this. Where can people go buy your book at? Yeah, it's uh, livelocal.store slash Christian, livelocal.store slash Christian, or just Amazon. Just type in Christian nationalism is inevitable, and you'll get me. All right, man. Get that book up the charts yeah, on Amazon. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is interesting. I look forward to reading it. Hey, brother. Appreciate you coming on. We got more. I, we got a lot more to talk about. I, I know, hope you're I coming to the conference. We can yeah. talk about this a lot yeah. more. All right. So if you're single, get married. If you're married, have you some kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them. Until tomorrow, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politics. Another significant contributor to skyrocketing tuition is the amenities arms race, the nonstop contest to build, 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 and the expectation that our college campuses provide a resort-like amenities package. Now, on the one hand, you need buildings to house your college. I have no objection to the president who is raising money to build classrooms for his students. That is, in fact, what I spend much of my own time doing. But colleges are less interested in building simple lecture halls and are now consumed with climbing walls, lazy rivers, hot tubs, and various spa facilities. And the most important amenity of all for the American college campus is the football team. Now, I actually love competitive sports quite a lot and believe that they can bring a great deal to the educational process. That said, college sports in America have had a disastrous effect on the quality of college education. For instance, in my home state of Idaho, do you know who is the top paid state employee? The answer is the head coach of the Boise State University football team, who makes $1.4 million annually. And the BSU coach literally makes twice the salary of the next guy down the list of highest paid state of Idaho employees, who happens to be the BSU basketball coach. On the one hand, if you know anything about BSU football, this salary actually makes sense. And so I understand why whoever is going to coach this team would rate such a salary. But it only makes sense if you ignore a lot of nonsense first. 
Why is an athletic team given such lopsided preference at the college? The simple answer is that the college football team is more important than the academic program. From a financial perspective, with the exception of a very small handful of football powerhouses, colleges lose money on their athletic programs every year. So what is the motivation for keeping these money-sucking programs afloat? The truth is that considered on their own, the athletic programs make no sense. But considered from a marketing recruitment perspective, college athletics are ridiculously effective. This is known as the Flutie effect named after Doug Flutie and his Hail Mary pass in 1984 that led Boston College to an unlikely victory over the University of Miami and to a brief surge in applicants in the following years. While the Flutie effect plagues our larger Division I schools, there is another phenomenon, one quite opposite the Flutie effect, which I think plagues our smaller Division III colleges. I'll call it the Rudy effect, partly because of the 1993 movie and partly because I'm trying to be clever and rhyme with Flutie. When a college like my own New St. Andrews College wants to grow, the single most successful growth strategy is simply to add athletic teams. By doing that, you are able to capitalize on the crushed hopes of all the high school kids who spent their high school years dreaming not of being a college student, but of being a college athlete, who nevertheless were not good enough to be recruited by a school of any significance. These students will enroll in your college with little to no scholarship money, purely for the chance to live out their dream of being a college athlete. Of course, in order to keep these students enrolled, the colleges have to significantly dilute the academic integrity of their program. So why are colleges supporting these athletic programs? Because the existence of these programs increases recruitment substantially. So when a prospective student visits a university, his visit will be dominated by touring the various extracurricular amenities and athletic spectacles, none of which will contribute to his education in any substantive way. As I've already mentioned, I love athletic competition, and I can also appreciate the need to build campus buildings, but these things should serve the education rather than the education serving these things. We've spent the last year covering the problem with Big Ed on our blog and on our YouTube channel. If you are new here or returning to view this series and you would like to follow this conversation, please go to our YouTube channel and click subscribe and click the bell icon to receive notifications when we publish new content or visit nsa.edu and click on the blog to read more in-depth analysis of this topic.